0: Hey, I'm Kara Oakleaf. And I'm Susie Rigdon. You're listening to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. Each season, we sit down with writers from across the genre spectrum, so, subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more. Kara, today we are talking to YA novelist Pamela Harris about her debut novel "When You Look Like Us," and one of the things that we're going to be talking to her about is her experience as a former school counselor. And of course, part of the counselor's role is to mentor students and encourage students. So, I wanted to ask you sort of a personal question: and do you remember somebody early in your life who encouraged you or mentored you on the path of of writing? You know what? One thing I was
1: thinking about when we were talking about this is my elementary school had a program called Young Authors. And I don't know if this is something that happens in a lot of elementary schools around, around the US, but every year there was, um, there was a unit where everybody in the class wrote a book. So every year in elementary school, there were, I had a book project that I got to work on and I loved doing that Um, so, so that was a, that that was a huge thing that I remember from, from being very young in elementary school. But the one, the one teacher I really remember is my sixth grade teacher who was very encouraging and, and she meant so much to me because she was a writer too. She was someone who had um, been writing for most of her life. She had a lot published, a lot of short stories. And I found that to be so inspiring and, um, and I admired her so much for that. So, so when she, kind of encouraged me and and, and, and encouraged me to keep writing and, and saw this as something that I could do. It meant so much to me. And, and that it really did make a difference when I was very, very little, you know,
0: when you were talking about those book projects, I got this sudden flash of the, like, Felt covered hardback books. I don't know if you if that's if that's how you finished your books, but it's you know my story about like my friend and I or like aliens, and I've colored it in marker.
1: Yeah, <laughs> like others are... did this too. I'm sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and it's just like these out of this world fabrics on the books, but but that was a really yeah. important experience. And you know, like you, my it was my first grade teacher who told my parents. Oh, she's going to be a writer. And I'm just thinking about like, what are the stories that I was telling as a first grader that, you know, this red hair, like fire engine, red hair teacher (laughs) looked at my parents and just said, yes, this is, this is the career for, for her. And I, that is just so crazy to me, but also wonderful. And, you know, I, I look at students, now, and some students are coming into university and they've had a lot of this kind of encouragement and you can see it. They've taken a lot of creative writing classes. They feel really good about their writing. Um, but then I get some students where my class is their first creative writing class ever. And they're very nervous. They don't feel like they know as much as everybody else who are dropping words, like ecfrastic and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like it's really important to just say you have talent and we can work with this and look at these really interesting things that you're doing and try to, create that environment where they feel comfortable to actually write alongside of their peers. Well, one thing I
1: always really, uh, really enjoy about teaching is when a student is doing something really interesting in terms of style or form, and, and they don't necessarily have the words for it, you know, because they haven't had that, maybe they haven't had that encouragement or those other classes before. Um, but being able to, to point out something and saying, you're doing something really inventive here, you're doing something really interesting here. And and sometimes they haven't even realized it until until they are in one of those classes where it, where it gets talked about. And I think that really is so important.
0: And also just for us as writers, yeah, we're the teacher, but when you find that really inventive thing um, or approach, it's so cool to be like, right, that's a thing that I can do because sometimes... Yeah we forget that you can be inventive and surprising and do something from a totally different direction. So I I feel like that kind of discussion and relationship is, is really important for both sides.
1: Um, I think so too. I, I honestly, I, I find that like that teaching writing is one of the best things I can do for my own writing, because it's just another Avenue to be thinking about form, to be thinking about craft, to be finding all these new ways to, to approach, to approach student work very often tells me something about something in my own writing that I maybe haven't thought about in in that particular way. And
0: sometimes it's exactly what I need. Absolutely. Well, I'm really looking forward to talking to Pamela Harris today about her novel, When You Look Like Us.
1: A former school counselor by day, Pamela N. Harris received her bachelor's in English and a master's in school counseling at Old Dominion University, her MFA from Fairleigh Dickinson University, and a PhD from William & Mary. She's the author of When You Look Like Us. Welcome, Pamela, and thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: (laughs) So your debut novel, When You Look Like Us, uh, is a fast-paced mystery for teens, and we were wondering, were you always interested in writing that genre? You know what?
2: Not necessarily. I think I was actually more interested in watching the genre. Um, I was a huge Veronica Mars fan growing up. And I I was also a huge Joseph Gordon-Levitt fan. And he did a high school mystery movie called Brick a few years ago. And I just like I love both of them. And one thing I've always noticed in watching both is That the characters of color, I mean, they they had, you know, featured them, but they were always like kind of like the supporting cast and not the main lead. And so I've always had that question in my mind, like, well, whatever, like how would this story be different if it was like the lead character was someone of color that was trying to figure out the mystery or trying to solve the crime? So that's kind of how the wheels start percolating with that.
1: (laughs) So you you grew up in Newport News, and this is the Virginia City where the book is also set. Could you talk a little bit about writing a place that you knew so well?
2: Oh my goodness. See, it's interesting because originally this novel wasn't supposed to be set in Newport News. Um, mm-hmm. I was, I was meeting with my editors and we initially had the idea that it would be set in Chicago. And as we were talking and, you know, getting to know each other, they asked about, you know, what was my childhood like, my adolescence. And I told them about, you know, I grew up in this city called Newport News. Now that many people are aware of it besides like the shipbuilding, you know, like the Newport News shipbuilding company. And I told them what it was like when I was actually um, in high school. At some point, my mother and I, we moved to public housing and how like the perceptions of me changed, even though I was like a a student. And I always made honor roll when people found out where I was living at, you know, that you could just tell there was like a a change in their face. Like, oh, okay, you, you live in that area. So they made assumptions about me. And I remember in having that conversation, even about how sometimes I was embarrassed, you know, because my dad was military originally. So that was a shift for me to, you know, go from living on military bases to go into public housing. And when I told the editors that story, they were like, oh my gosh, this is it. You know, this is the story. You should you should definitely, um, you know, try to set this story based on this area as much as you feel comfortable with and once I got that green light to do it, I think like it just opened up the the story for me even more. I felt like I knew the characters, I knew the world and I just kind of got into the rhythm of it, you know, much quicker. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, that must have been such an interesting shift to make, going from imagining that Chicago was the setting to to a place that you really were that familiar with. Absolutely, absolutely.
2: Because I've only visited Chicago once, <laughs> so I was like, okay, I guess like we'll we'll see what happens. Maybe I'll catch another flight there. Maybe I'll like use Google Maps at the time. But um, so I, I was really thrilled when I was able to like set it in my home base, my home territory. How how has the book been received there? Have you have you heard from fans and people uh, oh in Newport News about it? I, on social media, and I think I've gotten a few emails too as well, or actually the main people I hear from with this is a lot of teachers and educators that worked in the area. So when they reach out to me, you know, for different events and they were saying, Hey, w- w- did you, were you referring to this location? Were you referring to this neighborhood? Like it, to them, it was almost like they were like taking a trip back in time. And it was nostalgic for them, for those that had affiliations, if they were teaching in the school system. Um, and even when my family members are really it now too like they can kind of see the little winks that I'm giving whether it's to a specific place that we would you know hang out at or reside in or whether it's a character too that I'm like saying nudge nudge wink wink like it's an inside joke so I've been receiving a lot of feedback from like the adults like wow you really like nailed the vibe of it basically.
0: When you were talking about this journey of of yours and the change of the address and how that affect you. All I could see is all of these inner thoughts from Jay and all these different situations that he's in, whether it's like that interview at Taco Bell and obviously I won't spoil anything. He's got some other things going on that he's, he's very aware of, but then also not letting his friend, come over to his house and, and all of these other different things. Um, he's so aware of how others perceive him. So can you can you talk about I mean, clearly, it sounds like a lot of this is very, very personal. Can you talk about crafting Jay as a character and how he's constantly battling against stereotypes in his life?
2: No, oh, I love that question. He, you know what, I think that he was a little bit tricky initially, initially, because I think there was a lot of Unresolved feelings I had to face about you know me growing up and you know some of the resentment. And I think it took a while for me to turn that resentment into resilience. And so I wanted to make Jay authentic and hey, this is a teenager, he's aware that you know, even though he tries to pretend that he doesn't care what people think of him, he actually does. And I also wanted him to slowly but surely start to realize that the same thing that bothers him that other people are doing to him, he in turn does the same thing to others. Like he's having like these, you know, misperceptions and, you know, false ideas of what someone is or who someone is basically based on their neighborhood and and where they come from too. And so in a way I wanted to shine a light that even though we feel, you know, repulsed and, you know, bad that is happening to us, those same negative stereotypes kind of gets perpetuated and we then in turn reinforce it. And um, it took me a longer time. <laughs> I had to be much older than Jay to realize that I was doing it. And so I wanted to try to weave that into him more authentically authentically. Like I I knew that I didn't want to have to have Jay looking back as an adult saying, wow, I was wrong about X, Y, Z. So I had to do it in a way that was more immediate to him for him to kind of slowly but surely understand that.
1: I wanted to ask you about a little bit about a character like Nick. And I was, I was curious, you know, you've talked about how so often stories of, of real life black girls who go missing get overlooked. So I was, I was curious about how much that's on your mind when you're writing somebody like Nick, and if there were any particular cases that, that kind of pushed you to write
2: a story like this. Oh, yes. Nothing in particular. It was, I think when this story, you know, idea came about, it was more so, especially when I I felt like I could be authentic about, you know, what the characters look like, where they grew up in, I wanted to be realistic as to what would happen then if someone that looked like me from my neighborhood at the time went missing. And, you know, I know I have a, you know, strong family, you know, lots of people that love me that will like move heaven and earth just to find me. But it's, also kind of frustrating when you're seeing that we're not getting the same attention from, you know, media, the police, when it's one of us versus someone else. And so I wanted to make sure that I was bringing attention to that without kind of like preaching and, and ramming it down the reader's throat. I just wanted you to have this, you know, perspective of this family and kind of figure out who they were as people and um, you know, into how like the world is reacting to the fact that, hey, my, my sister is gone. And I, I think when I was writing this story, I was doing a lot of research because it's actually more you know prominent than I even guessed. You know, I, I'm thinking like even last year, I think there were about a hundred thousand like missing cases. Of, of like black females, and typically they make up about a third of like the missing person cases, but we're only fifteen percent of the population and Then when you think about those numbers and then how much of it you actually see in the media is like minuscule compared to you know what we actually do get to see about you know missing women, so I wanted to kind of like draw attention as to why that might be happening, and when that attention does finally get you know shined on us, sometimes it's always through a negative lens. And yeah, I just kind of wanted to share my frustration about that again without, you know, standing on a pulpit and and you know wagging my fingers and, and, and blaming it, you know, blaming others about that. I just wanted people to ha- build some empathy for characters and you know, that live in a world that may not be familiar to theirs.
0: I think that's what this novel does so well is creates that sense of empathy and understanding, even if you don't have similar experiences or you don't think you have similar experiences letting the teen readers in and adult readers as well, let them in and meet Jay, meet Nick, you know, and and see everything that's going on and really feel that. So one thing that I, I really loved about this and it's, again, a very personal connection is school counselor connection. Um, Yes. (laughs) So Jay's counselor, you know, trying to nudge him to do the literary magazine and everything um, like that. And so can you talk about your experience as a school counselor, how it influenced writing the book and maybe some of the important things you learned while doing that job?
2: Oh my gosh. Being a school counselor pretty much almost had everything to do with this debut novel. It's mainly because, I mean, there's many facets to it. First, as a school counselor, I would see a lot of my black students, black males in particular, that would get referred to my office because sometimes the teachers would be under the assumption that they hate English, they're not motivated, um, they need trouble with, um, or they need assistance with reading and tutoring. And the case was really was that they just weren't interested in what they were being required to read because a lot of the times, like the books that were being assigned to them or even the books that were being recommended to them to check out at the media center didn't really reflect their lives, or it didn't really draw them in. And so that was always in the back of my mind. And then as well, as a school counselor, I'm doing like these career planning and setting goals with my students. And, you know, I'm always like, I've always been the school counselor that I never want to like tear down a student's dreams. Even if it seems like it's unreachable, we're going to come up with a concrete plan to try to achieve it and come up with a backup plan just in case. And I realized while I was doing that, like I'm sitting here, you know, facilitating these dreams for my students, where it's always been my dream to be a published author. So I think, you know, they motivated me in seeing, you know, that they wanted more books about characters that look like them and like the that I've I've used with them for interventions. I did bibliotherapy where we would read novels together and short stories and seeing how that changed their lives. I think in a way it kind of reignited my passion for writing and reading again. And so it, it drove me back into this field in particular writing for them as like my main readers basically. So yeah, that is pretty much like I think my time as a school counselor actually gave me the permission to pursue what I'm doing now.
1: When you were talking about working with these kids who aren't seeing themselves in the books that they're reading and, um, and, and really needing to have that representation. One of the things that I really wanted to ask you about, because you've now both been a school counselor, somebody working with kids in the schools and an author, it's been on my mind so much lately, what the impact on kids is when we're seeing so many schools across the country facing book challenges. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: I, you know, like what, what impact does that have on kids like the ones you're working with and, and 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 kids in any public school that's that's going through something like this.
2: Oh, I love that question because it always makes me think because not only am I looking at these um you know book banning and challenging books from the lens of an educator, but now that I have my own children I'm kind of viewing it as a parent and I've always wondered that once I have my own children would my viewpoint change about this topic. And I will say that it hasn't. <laughs> if anything, it kind of makes me more passionate about it. So I am, I'm an individual that believes that I should never impede upon how another parent wants to raise their child and the values that they want to instill in them. Um, but then I, I think in that same process, then you shouldn't impede upon what my child wants to learn and what my child wants to do and what my child wants to read about. So I I think it's very important for us to be able to allow students to see, you know, see themselves in the pages. Like, you know, I I believe in representation. I think it changes worlds. And I also believe that even when my children get older and they're reading on their own and it's not just me reading, I want them to read about other cultures. I want them to read about other identities and experiences because I think through literature that builds that empathy for them. And so even now I have a 17 month old and a three year old, and I'm very even intentional about the books that I purchase and read to them. I try to make sure that I'm not just buying truck books and superhero books for my boy and not just princesses for my girls. I want them to read about different cultures. I want him, I think he has a book with a princess on the cover that he (laughs) enjoys. So, you know, I'm trying to mix it up until I figure out what they enjoy and what they are leading to as they get older. And if there's questions to be asked from those books that they're reading, I want to help them find those answers to it as opposed to not letting them see it at all, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, why I'm so thankful for libraries. Because yes. it's like every week I go, uh, Karen, and I both have have young children. And every week I go and I, you know, let's find some new books, let's find some different things. And I'm always so surprised at these incredible books, because sometimes you only hear about Dr. Seuss or like the, the books you're going to get at your baby shower. Yes. <laughs> you know, and there are so many more books out there. And and one of the things I've just decided is whenever I know somebody who's having a kid, I'm going to buy them the book that's most special to me. And it's, you know, there is definitely a time and place for Dr. Seuss. I love me some cat in the hat, yes.
2: but there's also
0: <laughs> so much else that's out there with all of these different, you know, different authors and different perspectives. And so that's really lovely. So speaking of children, you've got two young children. You're working full time. You wrote your debut novel. Uh, maybe you have some time for yourself. How do you balance? That's a big question. How do you balance all of that?
2: When you f- find the answer to that, please let, let me know. I will say, you know, uh, my my day job, I am a, I'm a counselor educator now. So I'm training future school counselors and clinical mental health counselors. And one thing in the program where I, I teach in you know, my colleagues and I, we try to reinforce the importance of self-care and setting boundaries. And so for me, you know, I'm trying to practice what I preach. And so I'm I'm being very intentional that when 8 p.m. hits, you know, I don't care what's going on what's like not done on the to-do list that is my time to unwind whether it means catching up on what's on my dvr and binge watching a show or you know making sure that i catch up on my reading i have something on my nightstand right now that i've been tearing through so i make sure to use that time just for me that's when the kids are in bed that's when i close the laptop no more emails are being answered and it's just however i want to use utilize that time until i go to bed basically so i'm being very firm with that, and I'm being very firm um, about the time, you know, dinner time with my kids. I'm not going to pick up a phone and and answer a phone call. You know, they can wait. So I, I, I and I want my kids to see me modeling that, even at you know the young age that they are now, just to make sure that they're allowing time for themselves and, you know, when they are with their loved ones that they're being present or as present as they can be. So I'm I'm still learning. I'm still doing it daily, but so far I would say I've been somewhat successful with that.
1: (laughs) I have to ask too, because you mentioned the book on your nightstand. What, What is it? What's, what's the book that you're having trouble staying away from right now?
2: When no one is watching by Alyssa Cole. Excellent, excellent, excellent. It's like this adult kind of thriller is I think it's like some spooky elements too as well. Um, But I've also been such a huge fan of audible. So like even sometimes if I'm driving, like I'll have this one that I'm reading, you know, with my hands, and I can like turn the pages, but then I'm also listening to a lot of mysteries on audible i just finished um you know some books from karen McManus, who's like this wonderful young adult mystery writer and i'm currently listening to now um my sister is a serial killer i believe it's called oh yeah yeah hilarious like (laughs) i get excited when i'm about to go into the car because i know i'm going to listen to more of that so yeah so i'm balancing listening to books and reading books actually too as well
0: (laughs) And I have to ask you, in the part of your bio we didn't read, it said part of that special free time was watching those Leonardo DiCaprio movies. So I have to ask, which one is your favorite?
2: Oh, my goodness. It changes, I think, every year. I think... I will have to say, I, I'm always torn between saying Romeo and Juliet, the Baz Luhrmann one, because that's like, yes. is when I absolutely just fell hard for him. And then also, I really love Inception, because it's still like,
0: yes. and it makes me,
2: and it has Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who I'm also a huge fan of, and it's like yes. both of them in it together, and I just think it's such a, a, a mind-bender, so those two are on the top of my list currently. Yes.
0: We were talking about this as we were writing out our questions and I told Kara Inception was my number one choice and she still has not yeah. seen it. So uh, you know, oh shame on shame God. on Kara. Kara, <laughs> yeah,
2: we
1: have to change this. Okay, okay. I've got I've got I've got two votes for Inception at this point. I gotta add it to my list now. Absolutely. You know? Susie was telling me it's like it's so much about storytelling, which is which is right up all of our alleys. So I'm gonna have to watch it. That'll Absolutely. be my my weekend movie, I guess,
0: now. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Pamela, for talking with us. Uh, It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks again, Pamela. The Fall for the Book
1: podcast is produced by Susie Rigdon as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you
0: can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. Read on.